HCC, how you doing? Man, happy Sunday to you. So good to get to be with you. It's great to see you here at the Victorville campus. For those of you joining us in Apple Valley and Hesperia and online today, a big welcome to you as well. Glad you're here. Thank you for making this a part of your weekend planning. And we're so glad uh, just to be able to be together and see what God is doing. I, I feel this great sense of momentum in this new year uh, just within our church family. I think about the different initiatives that are direct team shared a couple weeks ago. They're in full motion now and uh, just the things that God's doing among us. So it's just a privilege, privilege to get to be your lead pastor, privilege to get to bring God's word to you today. I was reflecting last night, um, I think it was probably post-service, and I was thinking about what was I doing this last Saturday of January a year ago? And it put me back to the fact that that today, now moving a day in the new year, is the one year anniversary of my daughter Aaliyah and Joe's wedding. And so they're one year into their marriage and their anniversary is today. It's a pretty cool thing and uh, very excited for them what God's doing in their lives. But those milestones, right, they stick with you. And I was just processing, man, that was such a great event and so good to see God bringing two people together and looking over this last year and just seeing that they keep making, they keep bringing out the best in each other. And I'm so grateful for that. So you're like, Todd, neat, let's get to the Bible. Let's do that. So here we are, we're in First Peter chapter one. We're taking our time going through this first chapter because it's building such a great foundation foundation. And that's what Peter's doing, not just for us, but his original audience. We'll read that we'll find the first real chapter and a half into the middle of two is really all doing this same thing, is building a foundation of great encouragement and great exhortation. It's worth it. Keep going. And so we're going to see that today in the message as we dive in. And, and we saw this from the very first week, Peter writes to elect exiles not people who've been displaced from their earthly homes, but he's reminding them that they have a citizenship in heaven now that they are in Christ and Jesus is their only hope. And the reality is they have a new allegiance and it is to his kingdom. That was really important in the first century. Significant persecution was about to come and Peter was on the front edge of that, though they were beginning to get signs. It's just as important in the 21st century. And the things that we're walking through today, other followers of Jesus have faced before us, they will face after us. But these words are so timely and so helpful to us. And it's important that we remember whose we are. It's important that we remember where our home is. And it's important that we remember to whom our allegiance is due. So we move forward into this chapter today. We've just last week finished with this idea that God has called us to be holy as he is holy. We talked about the idea of a toothbrush and how that helps us understand what the concept of holiness means. And diving in beyond that today, we're gonna see what are the expectations? What, is, what does it mean to live towards a holy God? As well as we're gonna see what it took for this holy God to make us holy, the atoning sacrifice of his one and only son. It's great on all three of our campuses today, we've enjoyed and engaged and participated in communion. And there couldn't be a better day for it because this imagery is powerful. 
And we're gonna wrap up today being strengthened in our faith, in our hope. So let's dive in today. You have your notes ready. Hopefully you have your Bible open. First Peter chapter one. Here's where we start. The certainty of evaluation causes us to live as intentional exiles here. The certainty of evaluation causes us to live as intentional exiles here. We pick it up in chapter one of First Peter verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Passage begins with Peter continuing an idea he has mentioned most every week in our series, so multiple times just in the first 17 verses of his letter to the, to the believers. And, and it started with, you've been birthed into a new birth into a living hope. And so if you're birthed into a new living hope, you're also birthed into a new family and you're birthed into a family with a new father. So Peter's reminding them, you, the, the creator of the universe, almighty God, you get to connect with, you get to relate to, you get to approach as your father. Now I've done this long enough talking to all kinds of different groups of people about the fatherhood of God. And I know that's a, a concept that comes with a lot of baggage, mostly because what we tend to do is attach the relationship or the lack of relationship we had with our earthly dad and project that onto that must be what God is like. Can I just help you with this in just a, a small way? The simple reality is the best of any earthly father, any of us in the room, any of us watching online, any of us on any campus ever had, doesn't begin to compare with the greatness of your heavenly father. He's not to be confused with any version you've ever had here. But what he is, is wanting you to know that you're his son, you're his daughter, when you've placed your faith in Christ. Man, that is a powerful image. And I want you to catch what Peter doesn't use, what role or title he doesn't use when he refers to a God who is going to judge. He doesn't use the term judge. He uses the term father. Now that's not to say that God will not be a judge who will judge all, every human being, based on the fact of them placing their faith in Christ or not. The Bible records this in Revelation 20 called the great white throne judgment because he will do those things exactly. But Peter wants his readers to know who place their faith in Christ, you no longer have a relationship with God that is primarily that of judge. You have a relationship with God that is now that of father. A father who will evaluate, but nonetheless, a father is the one doing the evaluation. And that should give them a sense of consolation as well as a right sense of reverent awe. This concept of being judged as a believer oftentimes is a little bit of new information. We're like, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Peter makes a glancing reference, but it's Paul. Interestingly enough, in his first and second letters to the Corinthians, that speaks very candidly about this concept and helps us a ton. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, consider that as one type of category, 
wood, hay, or straw, consider that a lesser type of category, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, capital D day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames." What we're talking about is this kind of judgment that believers will face will not, the the text is so clear, will not be a judgment based on salvation. You read at the end, even those who, who in a sense, all that they put out there made of wood, hay, and straw is burnt up, they will survive. Like when escaping a burning house. So it's not a, a judgment of salvation, but it is a judgment of reward. The first time I came in contact with this passage, I can remember, I mean, I could have read it or someone could have shared it with me, but the first time it caught my attention, I was a freshman in college and I was serving as kind of a youth leader at my home church in Yukaipa. I was home for the weekend and as I was there as a youth staff trying to figure out what am I supposed to do here on a Sunday morning with these students, we all kind of put all the students in the auditorium during our Sunday school hour. That was kind of in our Baptist church, the way we rolled. And so all the students were in this auditorium and they had a special speaker. And I just remember him in the very first part, maybe first five, 10 minutes of his message, read the passage I just read to you. And I, I can't remember ever seeing that in the Bible before. And so I was stuck. And for the next 40 minutes, it was just like the Peanuts cartoons with the teacher, wah, 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 wah. I had no idea what in the world was said after that. And I was not doing my job as a youth leader that day, but I was just drilled in on this passage, recognizing, do you mean, God, does this teach me that I can live my entire life following Jesus, but building with the wrong materials have nothing eternally lasting to show for it. I was just drilled into my chair, trying to process a reality I'd never even considered before. Paul elaborates on this judgment in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter five, verse nine. He says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So these are both good teaching, good helpful information to understand there will be an evaluation of our lives even as we're in Christ. And as a result, what does Peter say? With this in mind, what should they do? They should live out their lives as foreigners with a reverent fear. This is what we talked about last week, an imperative verb. This is a directive, this is a command. Live out your life as a foreigner with reverent fear. That concept of foreigner keeps coming up, right? This elect exile, and now we have it again in verse um, 17, that were called foreigners, that original language, that Greek word is sojourner, and I like this, or one who lives in a strange land. If I'm here to tell you today that you live in a strange land, you didn't even need me to say that. You're already there. You're like, this is a pretty strange land. But not just strange because of the culture of the time, strange because it's foreign. It's not your home. 
And I was processing a little bit, the shred has been so good for me just to see big picture themes in the Bible. And I was going back all the way to the beginning, also thinking of a book I recommended to you a couple weeks ago called Faithful Exiles. And it's taking threads of all the different people who have been on exile in the Bible that represent the bigger exile of our home in heaven. And I was just thinking in the very first couple of books alone, Abram, then later called Abraham, is in Haran and God calls him to leave there and go to a place. He's like, I'll tell you where you're going while you're on the way. And he takes him to Canaan and he lives in Canaan as a sojourner, as an exile. God makes it real clear. You won't own any of the land you live on. You'll live in tents. But to your descendants, I will give this whole land. His grandson, Jacob, living in Canaan would go on exile back to Haran for fear that his brother Esau was gonna kill him. And he would return later on to the land of Canaan. It was one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery and taken in exile to Egypt. And it would later be Jacob and all of his sons, all of their families, 70 in all, that would go to Egypt in exile because of a famine in the land of Canaan. It was while they were there, 70 people over the course of 400 years would multiply to over 2 million. And they're slaves by this time. And one of those born into that system was Moses. Moses left in exile to Midian for fear of his life. But while he was in Midian for 40 years, God called him back from his land to the land he'd left in Egypt to bring out this group of people into that promised land he'd promised to their forefather, Abraham. I'm giving you all this, and I just gave you six examples of exile, watch this, in just the first two books of the Bible. This concept of being in exile is all over scripture, whether physically living in a land that's not your own or the concept of ultimately spiritually. And here's the beautiful thing, the author of Hebrews connects the dot powerfully for us. Hebrews 11 verse 13, all these people, like the ones I just mentioned, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Look, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This goes all the way back to people like Abraham and Moses. This has been the whole thing all along. In the garden, perfect relationship with God that's broken by sin. And the point is it's going to be a reunite. God is going to bring people back to be with him and him with them. That theme is all over the Bible and it pulls together in Revelation 21 verse three, God's dwelling place. John is writing, now the kingdom has come. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And here's this great line repeated throughout scripture. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the heavenly country. 
This is where citizenship is at. So in light of the fact that there is a pending evaluation of your life, in light of the fact that you are to live here as a foreigner, you're to also live with this sense, this presence of a reverent awe, a reverent fear. And that's what we talked about in our summer series in the book of Proverbs. We began, we began with the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And we define that phrase. It's in your notes. The fear of the Lord can be understood as a shrinking back in fear and yet a drawing close in awe. A shrinking back in fear and yet a drawing close in awe. It's a tension. Those two things don't usually go together. You're either fully afraid of something and you draw back or you're drawn to something moving forward in awe, but the fear of the Lord combines those two thoughts together and that's how we're to live with this reverential fear. And the great news is, is as we live that way, those lives are different from the lives of the other people we're living among, just like that's always been the case. That brings us to our second point in your notes. The price required to buy you back was the blood of God's own son, Jesus. The price required to buy you back, we'll see this word, to redeem you, was the blood of God's own son, Jesus. We pick it up in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter begins by verifying something, and I want you to pay attention. Every time we see in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and we know, or you know, these are important words because writers like Peter or Paul are not suggesting, well, it's, it's widely held, or some people think. It's like, hey, here's a, here's a known fact. And here's Peter saying, here's the known fact that your debt could not be paid with perishable things. And he talks about the greatest resource 2,000 years ago that similarly is pretty close to today, silver and gold. These are perishable things. He's used that word perishable in a message we looked at a couple weeks ago, referring to, and he's contrasting again, your faith is of greater value than gold which perishes. So twice now he's using these comparisons of what will last, faith, and in this case, the blood of Jesus versus that which is perishable, silver and gold. So Peter's saying, you know this. This is, this is something you've become very clear and aware of, so I'm not telling you anything new. But he says you, you needed something more significant, something imperishable to be redeemed. Let's look at that in our notes. The Greek word translated as redeemed is a ransom. Sometimes the word redeemed can seem like a very Bible land word, but ransom is a different word. Think of that mostly in a movie thriller, right? There's some ransom for someone that's given, but a ransom to restore something back into the possession of its rightful owner. That's, that's the word. So to redeem is to pay a ransom so that something can be returned to its rightful owner, a price paid back. And Peter says, we know the debt and we know the price and, and the price couldn't be paid with things that are of this world that are perishable. Price had to be with something imperishable, something that would last and would not fade. 
The reason, by the way, a price had to be paid at all is because there was sin. We go back to the beginning, like we said, there was this perfect relationship with God. As a result, though, of Adam and Eve choosing to go against God's design, sin enters the world, and as Romans 5 tells us, and so does death. Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, we call him in this passage the first Adam, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Let's just establish a reality. You didn't ask to be born into a sinful world, nor did you ask to be born with the nature of being a sinner. It is just the way it has been ever since that first failure. And because that first ancestor of ours, all of us were quote, in Adam, the result is, is that sin has made its way into all of our lives and death is a result. It's not a, a question of if you like it or not, it's simply the human condition. But it's in that condition, the great news is, is that we don't have to remain there. Under the power and dominion of sin and in the bondage of death. This is what Peter's talking about. There was a price paid to buy you back, to redeem you, to make you right with God. So the question is, it's not a question of if they had enough resources to pay their debt, the problem was they had the wrong currency. They needed an imperishable currency which could only be provided by the blood, the precious blood of the spotless lamb. Any people who had been Jewish, who had put their faith in Christ, when they're hearing that kind of language as they're reading Peter's letter, they would have connected the dots to what he's probably making a reference to, and that was the very first Passover. You see, at the very first Passover, there was a lamb that was required to be slain, and it wasn't just any lamb, it was a lamb without defect, spotless and pure. And this lamb was to be killed and its blood to be sprinkled or painted over the doorway of these Hebrew slaves' houses, watch. So when the death angel, the 10th plague came that night, he would, quote, pass over their homes because they had believed the word that Moses told them, that will be the sign, the blood of a spotless lamb over your doorframe the angel will pass over. And as the angel made its way to the houses of Egyptians who neither cared nor bothered to do anything, the firstborn in every family was killed. It was the final plague at which Pharaoh said, get out of here. And so the Passover lamb was always meant to forecast or to foreshadow this is who Jesus was going to be once for all and powerfully be able to provide the imperishable price that was required. It makes this to me so profound to consider the reality of what Jesus was willing to do. And because of this, the currency was made available because Jesus was obedient to go to the cross so that with his blood, God could indeed buy us back from the penalty of sin and death. Colossians 1 says it this way, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness when we lived under the control and the power of this world and brought us 
excuse me, into the kingdom of the son he loves. We've been transferred from one dominion to one kingdom in whom we have, and here's that word, redemption, the buying back, the ransom paid, the forgiveness of sins. That's why often when we talk about We'll, we'll talk about this ABC prayer at the end of every service and often we'll talk about the sinless sacrifice of Jesus. That's why we make a big deal about the sinlessness of Jesus because any other human being, even out of the benevolence and the altruism of their heart, who would even be willing to die for someone else, to die for their eternal forgiveness would fall short because they themselves are a sinful person than giving a sacrifice for sin. Instead, it needed to be a sinless sacrifice offered for sin, this precious blood of Jesus that was imperishable. Paul uses this concept of ransom and he gives Jesus a title, he calls him a mediator, a go-between between God and the wrath that was going to be poured out against fallen human beings and us, Jesus stands in between. In 1 Timothy chapter two, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So Jesus giving himself as a ransom creates this role of being a mediator between us. The author of Hebrews in chapter nine says it similarly. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Remember John chapter 13, Jesus at this communion when he's changing the elements of the Passover to now the elements of the communion. He says, I'm, I'm creating a new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How? Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So this is the work of Jesus. This is what he has done by offering his sinless blood to pay a debt you and I couldn't pay. We didn't have the right currency, but when the right currency was available, it was applied. I want you to know what is it that we've been redeemed from, back to Peter. If you look back at a verse we just read, Peter says you've been redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you by your ancestors. Now, we saw last week, Peter made comments related to their former lives. Remember he said, don't be conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Because he calls them obedient children. Now that you're this, don't go back to being dominated and conformed to that. So we know that was true of their life. They, they lived, in evil, lived out evil desires. But this is a second layer and he says, you've been redeemed from the empty, the hollow, the meaningless way of life you once lived that just you took for granted. It's how everyone around you lived. It's how your parents lived. It's how the people you interacted with, they just did what they thought was best. And maybe in the first century that related to a lot of foreign gods and deities and crazy sacrifices. And in the 21st century, it's people who live as consumers consumed with self. Not much has changed. And so Peter says, that's what you've been redeemed from. I don't know about you, but when I think of all the facets, right? Our salvation has multiple facets to it. And how great it is to be made right with a holy God through a holy sacrifice. How great is it to have this
promise and hope of eternal relationship and connection to God in heaven. But I will tell you, there's something powerful when we come to understand that our life here on this planet has meaning and purpose in the meantime. That's part of what we've been redeemed from is a purposeless life to now live one of meaning. Look in your notes. God rescued us from meaningless lives that were consumed with meaningless things to now have purpose, to now have purpose and direction that is first of all concerned with how to please him and secondly, how to bless and benefit others. We have purpose, we have meaning. We talk about it all the time at High Desert Church that God has supernaturally and strategically placed you among a group of people that you get to demonstrate Jesus' influence towards. And that's a powerful thing when we recognize you're on the planet for a reason. God is calling you into partnership and he wants to use your life in meaningful ways. How good is that? He hasn't just rescued us and told us to sit in the recliner and wait for heaven but he's rescued us and said, and in the meantime, I want to use you as an agent of rescue in other people's lives. So powerful, and this is all of what salvation includes. The empty way of life was empty because it contained neither a love for God nor a love for people. But you've been redeemed and now that's what Jesus said matters most. Love God and love people and that's what now consumes us rather than being consumed by self. Finally today, number three. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection lead us to believe in God. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection lead us to believe in God. Our last two verses today, verses 20 and 21. He was chosen, talking about Jesus, before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Though you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I want you to catch a really important thing. What Peter makes very clear, it's not the only place, Ephesians 1 is very clear to this point as well, But what Peter makes very clear is that the father did not send the son to pour out this precious blood as a reaction to sin, as though he didn't know that was going to happen. Imagine that scenario. God puts a man and a woman in a perfect situation, perfectly related to them, tells them literally don't do one thing. And over whatever course of time they choose to do the one thing. Can you imagine God looking and going, Wait, 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 what are they doing? Oh no, now what do we do? We gotta have a plan. Okay, here we go. That's a God who doesn't know what's coming and who simply reacts to what people do. The Bible teaches that we serve a sovereign God who's completely in control and completely aware of everything we're going to do. And so that's why Peter can say before the foundations, before the creation of the world, And this is what I really want you to grasp. Before the creation of the world, God, as it were, looked ahead. And he knew that not only would he create these two people in this perfect relationship with himself, he knew they would violate his design. He knew that sin and death would enter into the world. 
He knew that the only price that could be paid to redeem humanity was the blood of his one-of-a-kind son. And yet he did it anyway. He was never caught off guard. He was never unaware of what it would mean. And I love one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He says it so much better than I. God who needs nothing, loves into existence wholly superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing since there are no tenses in God, the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventors of all love. Peter says that is true and he goes on to say, and how fortunate for you that to his first century readers, how fortunate for you that you happen to be on the planet when what God had ordained before the creation of the world has happened in your generation. And how fortunate for you that though you might not have seen these things or heard these things firsthand, you're hearing them secondhand from a guy who did. I was there, I saw, I heard, I touched, I watched. This is the God man. And he did all these things for you. And I'm telling you so you might believe. This is what Peter says, how rich, how all these people beforehand were looking forward to this moment in their time, it had been accomplished. That's powerful for then, it's powerful for now because the goal, what is Peter wanting to do? He's wanting to grow their belief. Would you believe in this God and all that he's done that I'm communicating truthfully to you? And I want you to catch this, this is a theme that we're beginning to pick up in this book of First Peter. God never calls us to have faith in faith. God never spins some kind of storybook tale and just simply says, please have sincerity of belief in this and it'll go well with you. God actually never asks anyone to have faith like that. What he does do instead, look in your notes, we have belief in God that is rooted in reality in real things that happen, that real people led by God's spirit communicated to us that we might have substance to our belief, a weight that rests upon truth and not merely sincerity. God communicated true and real things that happen so that we might have a faith based and grounded in truth, based and grounded in reality, based and grounded in substance. There are people in your oikos that as you're listening to them, as they're sharing their belief system, as you hear it, you begin to understand you have a belief system that's detached from reality. 
It's not connected to anything that's really true. And though you may be incredibly sincere, it doesn't mean you're sincerely right. If I were to say to you today, I absolutely believe that the timber industry was all arranged in the northern part of America and southern part of Canada by Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox. They are the ones who took care of all of that lumber industry and put wood for places for houses to be built. You'd go, Todd, that's literally like a tall tale. There might've been a big guy named Paul, but there's no way he did what you're saying. And I would tell you, but I sincerely believe it. And you would say, Todd, you're sincerely wrong. Just because you believe it mightily doesn't make it true. Now, don't get me wrong. The truth that's in the word of God always requires a degree of faith ultimately to accept. You cannot academically make your way to God. There will always be a bridge of faith to cross, but it is a bridge that leaves reality because reality is there. It's founded upon that and steps into this place of trust rather than you should just believe it and we're all sincere about it. This is powerful because Peter wanted his readers in the first century, even though they were hearing it literally secondhand from the horse's mouth, Peter was there just like he wants you in the 21st century to have a substance to your faith and to understand it's rooted in reality and truth and not simply just things that we just keep saying to each other. Specifically, what are the things that Peter says are going to ground them in a stronger belief in God. It's the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, let me just read from uh, uh, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. This is the most just beautiful overview of really these events. Let me just read it to you straight. First Corinthians 15. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So Paul's saying, this is the facts that I have gathered, again, rooted in truth, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So those phrases mean both of those were forecast from the Old Testament. And that he appeared, I'm sorry, um, yeah. And that he appeared to Cephas, and we said a few weeks ago, Cephas is another name for Peter, whose letter we're reading. And then to the 12, after that, he being Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is saying, help, let me help you understand. When we say Jesus died, was buried and rose again, we're not saying that was all done in secret. By no means, these are all the people that he showed himself to post-resurrection. And not just his insiders, 500 people at once saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul writes, and I was the last, I actually saw him on a road to Damascus where he showed up to me, brilliant and bright, blinded me as a result. And when I said, who are you, Lord? He said, Jesus, who you're persecuting. So Paul says all these people had a personal interaction with the risen Jesus. We want you to know it's not a myth. It's not a fable, it really happened. 
And so Peter says, the resurrection of Jesus is one of those things that bolsters and builds your belief. But the other one is one that we don't often talk about and it's that of the glorification. And I think when he's talking about glorification, he's talking another way of saying it is Jesus's ascension. Acts chapter one gives us the narrative, verse seven. He being Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates that, or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you, you here gathered, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I want you to try to get into the disciples' sandals for just a minute. This had to be just filled with all kinds of conflicting emotions. Remember, in their minds, they'd already said goodbye to Jesus. When they saw him nailed to a cross, even though he had told them, not only is he gonna go die, but on the third day he's gonna raise. He told them numerous times, but they had no faith for that. They just thought, this is over, he's dead. They said goodbye. Jesus raises from the dead, he's with them for 40 days. All those things we just read about from 1 Corinthians 15. And now, by the way, John 14, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. He told them he was gonna leave them again. The whole upper room discourse is filled with language of I'm going to die, raise again, and then I'm gonna leave. So this is actually happening. This is the real personal, person to person goodbye. And I imagine in that moment, as he was literally ascending in front of their eyes, they must've had so many mixed emotions. On the one hand, fear, and in the sense of loss, like he's actually leaving us, what are we gonna do? But I gotta tell you, mixed in with those feelings, I've got to think there was great empowerment, a great emboldening courage. Because what did Jesus do before he left them? Matthew's account, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Luke's account in Acts chapter one, you're gonna receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You're gonna be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. They must have felt this great sense of, man, what can stop our leader? He's conquered death and he's commissioned us to go and say it in his name. Let's go get it. And just a day ago in the shred, I read through the book of Acts and that's exactly what they did. You and I are these recipients of their witness then that now 2000 years later, we are sharing with the people in our worlds just as they did. The passage we read finishes with not only a belief in God that would be bolstered, but their faith and their hope. Look in your notes. Know how often these terms of faith and hope have been mentioned in the first chapter alone. This is probably the fourth time we've seen these words come up. Note why though, these are essential qualities and responses that are required for us foreigners 
while we live in this strange land awaiting when we get to go home. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we are so grateful for your word, specifically this book called 1 Peter. Thank you for all the encouragement. Thank you for all the exhortation that we are receiving in these first 21 verses so far. And we're grateful, God, that we have a saving hope, grateful that we have an everlasting or a saving faith and an everlasting hope. Thank you so much for giving us those and for reminding us of how important those are gonna be for the journey. You may be here today, any of our campuses watching online, and when I talk about a saving faith and an eternal hope, you would say, Todd, I've, I've never responded to the invitation of the gospel. I, I couldn't say I have those things. I want you to know there's no class to attend. There's no hoops to jump through. It's you and Jesus today. And it's you saying, Jesus, I admit. I admit that there is a sin problem with me. I was born sinful into a sinful human world, a sinful human race. I get it. I, I cannot be right with God. But B, I believe. I believe that you lived a sinless life. <clears throat> I believe you offered yourself as a sacrifice. I believe that you were raised supernaturally on the third day. I believe you are the only savior available. So see, I choose today to bring my life and set it down at your feet and surrender. I choose to live the rest of my life following your example, anticipating your return. You can make that decision today. There is nothing keeping you. And I would pray you don't let another moment go by until you do. Father, this week, help us live out of that saving faith. Help us live with this everlasting hope that we would be your exiles, God, preparing for not only our home, but living out the purpose and the mission you have in our lifetimes. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.